The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Arush Merotra. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 22nd, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader going into the final stretch of the 2020 general elections, Orange County Registrar of Voters Neil Kelly shows how it's done, running a tight ship with innovative maneuvers. In the second segment, we get acquainted with Greg Ratz, Mission Viejo City Council member, as he talks about his candidacy challenging incumbent Katie Porter in the California 45th Congressional District. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. He's been at the helm since 2004 in this county, which is the fifth largest in the country. Neil has led the Registrar Voters Office through the largest cycle of elections in the county's 123 history. In his role as the county's chief election official, he leads an organization responsible for conducting elections, verifying petitions, and maintaining voter records. Prior to joining Orange County, Neil Kelly developed and grew several companies of his own, was an adjunct professor with Riverside Community College's Business Administration Department and served as a police officer in Southern California. Neil has received several awards for election administration, including recognition from the California State Association of Counties, the Election Center and the National Association of Counties, and the 2015 Public Official of the Year from the National Association of County Recorders, Election Officials, and Clerks. Neil serves on the U.S. Election Assistance Commission Board of Advisors and the Election Assistance Commission Voting System Standards Board, is the past president of the California Association of Clerks and Association Officials, and is the past president of the National Association of County Recorders, Election Officials, and Clerks. In addition, he served as the 2017-2018 member of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicines Committee on the Future of Voting, and all this leadership locally, regionally, and nationally makes Neil Kelly a veritable gold standard. He offers his valuable time today to appear yet again on this program as his demands intensify, as he has appeared each primary and general elections since his first appearance on the show in October of 2010. He comes to us today from his office in Santa Ana. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Neil Kelly. Thank you, Claudia, for the kind introduction. I'm glad to be back. Well, thank you. With the 47 days or so to go at the time of this September 18th taping, am I exaggerating, Neil? Does this have the feel of a championship game, a NASA launch, a Normandy beach invasion, all rolled into one event, the 2020 general election? I don't think you're exaggerating. I think that's very well put. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day and saying, you know, I've, I've managed about 80 elections to this point, and this definitely has to be one of the 
largest in terms of scrutiny and just attention on the election. And there is another factor, uh, complications, and we're going to get into that. So looking at this tall order, not only is there an increased number of registrations of voters, then there's the pandemic that occurred. And I'm sure you've already written a thank you note to the California legislature for moving this presidential primary up so that we, you could pull it off before the pandemic locked down. We had ours on March 3rd. It was pretty fortuitous timing. It really was. Yeah, you're right. One, one less using. So there's the pandemic now that it is a part of administering the general election. And then the highly problematic management of the U.S. Post Office, all with, and I will say, speaking for myself and for most people, that the national leadership's ongoing seeding doubt about the legitimacy of the electoral process since the fall of 2016. That's nothing but headwinds for you. Well, it is. And I, you know, th this whole process is always politicized. And I understand that and, and accept that process. And I keep telling people, you know, there's Benjamin Franklin was writing about this in the 1700s saying, we've got to watch the people counting the ballots, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really nothing new for me. So one of the first dates, the first aspect of participation is registration. October 19th is a deadline. And because we're calling it in from KUCI and thinking of the campus and other campuses, how are you handling the constant motion of students as they're still trying to figure out where their address will be for this fall quarter? Well, you know, right before the primary, I have to be, give big thanks to UCI because we started a new partnership with them to be able to get student data on an ongoing basis to update our records um, as much as we can. And as you pointed out, not every student knows exactly, obviously, where they're going to be. So we have the best information we have at this point, Claudia, and it's certainly better data than we had four years ago. And I think what's important, I'm, I've been bringing this up throughout this electoral season coverage of mine is that where those students are is going to have a critical role, I think, in their participation down ballot, which is, I think, real critical. The pandemic is revealing how important local leadership is in managing the pandemic. So the students don't know where they are. They won't know what the local stuff is. Now, you're exactly right. And if let's say they're in another state right now, but they've kept their residency or their precincting in California registration, the ballot that would be mailed to them, if we have that address, would have the local races, as you point out, but not, let's say they live in Montana, not what's in their local community in Montana. Right. So everyone gets a vote by mail with the postage paid. Before the ballots go out, Neil, though, when are you sending out our sample ballots, which are going to be really critical for people to bone up as early as possible so they can get their paperwork in as soon as possible ahead of any kinds of jam ups with the Postal Service. We will start mailing those next Wednesday on the 24th. And th those, like you point out, are very critical. It not, not only contains really valuable information on voting in general, but all of the COVID-19 precautions we're taking. So I think it's really important ah, for voters. Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Because I, I think that's where I'm going to get questions earlier than I've ever gotten because of people wanting to get on this. So then the places to vote from actual vote by mail ballot comes out. You're going to send them out on October 5th. We've Correct. got the drop boxes, we've got the mailboxes, and then the centers, which open up on October 30th. And you've pointed out that 
Orange County is the only place in California where all 116 drop boxes are accessible 24-7. You're on that, it, Neil. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was the intent of the legislature all along, but, you know, there are some counties that have drop boxes that close at night. So, um, yeah, 24 hours for us. And this is something of a public service announcement that I think some constituents are still confusing Dropbox with the U.S. Postal Mailbox. So I don't know if your staff is fielding questions from, from emails and incoming phone calls about that. Well, we're receiving about a thousand calls a day right now. So we're, we're definitely on top of that. Uh, we just installed a new Dropbox uh, on campus at UCI. So I think that's I saw insane. that on the map. Yeah. yeah, it's and so ocvote.com is where people can pull up all this information where everything is located. And then you were saying at the Honda Center event, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but at the event you were talking about, you're still negotiating with few more of the 168 voting centers. Are you just about done now? We're locked now, so that's good news. So, and that's all on the website. Yeah. Okay. And so for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Orange County Registrar Voters, Neil Kelly, administering yet another election season, admittedly a season like no other. He's already said that. And so staffing all these centers are like in this year's primary for the first time. They're paid employees. They're not volunteers. So how have you managed with the demographics of staff to keep them at the least risk of COVID-19? Well, I'm pleased to say that we're at about 60% fully staffed right now, which is good, but we have a ways to go. And we had a lot of returners from the primary, which is also very positive. We have taken unprecedented steps, and I don't think I'm exaggerating on this, Claudia, to ensure the safety not only of our team members, but of voters if they choose to vote in person. I can run through some of those if you're interested. Yes, yes, yes. So for instance, uh, all of our staff will have full PPE, face shields, face coverings. We will have multiple stations in the vote centers for hand sanitizer for the voters. We will have a face covering for every single voter in the county. So if they were to come in and they didn't have one, we would kindly ask them to wear one. But of course, it's your constitutional right to vote. And we're not going to get in a conflict with you if you choose not to wear one. Uh, But we're going to do our best to to physically distance you as much as we can. And to that point, I just, excuse me for a moment. When I went to your voting center lab at your office there in Santa Ana, then I was shown or there, there was some discussion mentioned about training how to de-escalate where there might be resistance to masking up there. Correct. That's part of the training. Exactly. Is okay. to, you know, my desire is to not have our team members have to get into a conflict. And, and there is that, that hope that we can convince people to wear the face covering. But again, we're, we're not going to force it. And then, as you saw, when you came to the vote center lab, there's going to be markings on the floor, plenty of signage that clearly directs voters. We're going to be using disposable pens for their ballot. And we're going to be using disposable ballot secrecy folders for the voters. When they go to vote in a booth, every other booth will be closed to maintain physical distancing. And reinforce that. And, and reinforced, absolutely, there'll be signage on those booths. And then when they're done voting, they'll go to a scan station, they'll scan their ballot, and then we have a dispenser for them to take their own I voted sticker. And then when they leave, there's another hand sanitizer station. So we've really gone all out, in my opinion, to, to ensure as best we can the safety of our team members and voters. And if I could just add one last thing, I've been to a few restaurants lately and I look around and I think, well, 
there's, I mean, there's not a lot being done. You're, you're separated by boost, but I'm just thinking about all the things that we have engaged with to try and make this as safe as possible. So I'm really proud of where we're at. So one of the shiniest of the objects uh, in your general election 2020 offerings is the Honda Super Center, which answers the moment now. And, and I guess as you opened up something that large, that's one reason why you you're said you're 60% fully staffed. You're gonna, as you add something that huge, you're gonna have to keep adding. Talk about what is so special and so the, the kind of array of possibilities for voters to remain safe from the drive-through or the uh, coming into the booths inside the Honda Center? I, I just think there's a number of really positive aspects to that. The first being it's an iconic location. I mean, you can't miss it from the freeways. It's easy access off the freeway into the parking lot. It is, as you know, Claudia, a very large facility with plenty of space and parking. So we're gonna be operating drive-through uh, voting there. You don't have to get out of your car. We'll produce a ballot for you. Or if you want to drop off your ballot, you can do that, hand it off to one of our team members and drive straight through. If you choose to go in and vote in person, you're going to see a concourse inside the Honda Center where we're going to occupy about 15,000 square feet. And that allows us to have a center about 10 times the size of an average vote center. Wow. So numerous check-in stations, much more voting opportunities. Well, so I'm still getting lots of questions about election fraud as well as voter fraud. You have so many junctures, Neil, where you protect the system from these violations. Could you just talk briefly about all the cross-checking that you do and ensure that each voter's ballot is counted and counted only once? That is a tall order to do in just a few minutes. <laughs> but what I will tell you is that, you know, any human built system has vulnerabilities. And it's my job to ensure we're plugging those holes and watching out for those vulnerabilities. And we have a very strong relationship with Homeland Security, the FBI, our local law enforcement fusion center, where we have done a, a tremendous amount of work on the back end to enhance physical security, but more importantly, system and network security. And there is so much work that goes into protecting your ballot because in my opinion, it's very sacred. And on top of that, the checks and balances in place to ensure that one voter is casting one ballot, that a vote by mail ballot that is returned, that we can match that to the voter on record is very important before we ever open it. So there's just a number of things that have taken place to ensure that security and, and that integrity of that ballot. And, and I'll leave you with this and say that since 2016, we really embarked on vastly improving that process. It is, I would say, double the amount of security that we had in 2016. And I, I felt then that we had some very strong security measures in place. So this is not something we take lightly and uh, we're focused on it daily. It's not meant to be a political commentary, uh, but I wanted to see if you thought that if California not being a battleground state, there is a little less vulnerability to cyber attacks because it's a, it's a bigger investment to hack uh, and with a lower yield, some kind of a system where the, it's not a battleground state. It's sort of, you know, like the, the eight states in the country that might be a, more of the target for cyber fraud. Yeah, you're, you're raising a very good point. I think that's accurate. But I, I also know that um, California systems, including ours, are targeted daily from foreign entities. So 
this is something that we have to be on alert for every second of the day. Well, you know, I'm, I've always been curious about what you see and what keeps you up at night there, but I know any, if I were to ask for any more details, then I would, I would be killed as a host. <laughs> there would be, be no continuing. So I, I plan on doing more shows, so I can't ask more questions, even though my, my antenna are just tingling to find out more about that. So, well, Neil, we've got poll watchers, we've got monitors and observers of all stripes going to all these voting centers. So, and I know in the past you have encouraged monitoring, but I'm, I'm getting missives from various partisan platforms that the people are very intent on not, they're not just gonna be monitoring, there's an intimidation aspect. What, Neil, do you anticipate is going to happen in Orange County. I'm not making you speak for all the other places, even though you could. Uh, what do you anticipate and how are you managing that kind of drama that is, it's, it's coming our way? Yeah, and you know, we're prepared for that. I mean, we saw that in other presidential elections and uh, we're ready for that. One of the things that we do, and we're updating it right now, is uh, publish a handbook that lets observers know the laws and the rules around observation. And, you know, one of the, the very strong prohibitions in all of that is any kind of intimidation. And look, there's going to be a swift response to that. And I, I can assure you that the plans that we have in place with the district attorney, with our, like I said, our local law enforcement fusion center, and the command centers that we're going to have set up, it's just not going to be tolerated under any circumstances. So what I do for sure is encourage people to observe, obey the rules and the laws, and it's a transparent process. And so uh, I encourage that. We're going to have remote observation too, Claudia, so people can do it from their home as well. So, but you know, though, it's a really legitimate concern because we've seen other domains that we thought were safe domains where the norms of that safety have been violated. I think it's something that in any way you can reassure Orange County constituents that this is going to be a safe place to be participating. Absolutely, it's going to be a safe place to participate. We uh, are standing up plans right now to have, like I said, a robust and swift response to any issue related to intimidation. It's just not going to be tolerated. And, and I think, by and large, if, you, if I look back over the years where, you know, you we, we tend to forget sometimes, but there were, there were some pretty heated times with several things that were on the ballot candidates, elections, we've been through it all. And, and I just have to thank, again, our law enforcement partners because um, it's just not gonna, you're not gonna see that in Orange County. It might be attempted, but we're gonna be there to, to stop it. So on to a, a different area is what is your agency's role to get the cooperation of media and local parties to deal with the delay in actual results? Well, so one of the things that I did within days of the primary, you, st you kind of touched on it at the start of your program, and that was COVID really exploded in March. And I realized within a day or two that worst case scenario for us in the fall would have been an all-mail ballot election. So I immediately ordered additional automation and scanning equipment, which has doubled our ability to deal with the volume if we had you know, increases in vote by mail, which I still anticipate we will. Yes, yes. And that, the byproduct of that will be not just handling the volume, but doing it faster. So California changed the law for COVID, 
to allow us to start processing ballots 30 days out of election day. Okay. And so the minute the first ballot hits my door, which will probably be within a few days of us mailing it, we're going to be processing that ballot. So you're going to see much quicker responses to the processing side. So I guess I'm not, I'll pivot away from our local area, but is there a role you have in national media to, to chill? <laughs> we, 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 we know, we saw in the year 2000, it was an astounding exercise of dealing with uncertainty. How might you exert your leadership, Neil, to, because uh, we can already see the media just sort of chomping on a bit. That's their DNA is to hurry up and report something. But are, are, are you using your leadership role to weigh in about building that capacity to manage the uncertainty of outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And I have been bombarded with national media and international media requests. In fact, in a couple of hours, I'm going to be with oh. the Swedish National Public Television. Okay. So there's a tremendous amount of interest in exactly what you're talking about. And I was just on Meet the Press a few weeks ago and, and, and discussed this very issue. Yes. So I think that people do have this natural desire to have it over in a day. But when we have the, the size of the population and the volume of that, it just simply is impossible. And so you may have a situation where you have several weeks for contests to play out just because of the volume. Right. And I, I, some of the media is talking, they're having their conversations with each other to understand the uncertainty, right. especially what we saw in 2018. That was... There yeah. were so many outcomes that, as you know, as the audience knows, that, that were determined two and more weeks up away. And so the- can I, can I just add one last thing? Claude? Yes, I'm of sorry. course. I was just going to say that, you know, voter behavior has changed so much over the years where they're delivering their voice at the last minute. In other words, they're turning in their ballot at the last minute. So what that does is it just makes the counting process start after election day for those additional results. So I'm not blaming the voters. I think it's great. I mean, let the voters choose what they want to oh, do, absolutely. right? It right. just changes that dynamic of when those final results come out. And in California, the law says you have 30 days to do it. We're not going to take all 30 here in Orange County. So more data points then. The centers themselves open up October 30th, and they're going to be open nice long days from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and then on the election day, they'll open up an hour earlier at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. So I, I was wondering with the Honda Supercenter, mm -hmm. with the cars in the queue, what are you going to do at 8 p.m.? The last vehicle in line at 8 p.m. is going to get a window cling put on the car. And then we will have staff there monitoring that because any vehicle that is in line, at least by 8 p.m., they are going to be allowed to process their vote or to turn in their ballot. And has that ever been done before? Or is this going to be, this is the first drive-in for a an well, ele general election day? Yeah, we, we did drive in drive through voting in 2008. And it was very well received, especially by the disability community, because they you know, were able to drive up in their vehicles and, and cast their ballot. It, the problem is, is that there's just so much logistics surrounding that, that right. we, we just didn't repeat it. But the Honda Center lends itself to that. So it's fantastic. 
Yeah, it's great the way that facility has transformed for so many uses during the pandemic. So, right, yeah. well, we're speak, speaking of tracking and driving and uh, voting and all that. What Give us where you want to steer constituents to go to follow any aspect of the Orange County Registrar Voters administering this general election 2020. Well, I really think that if they're interested in all of the data points that you've talked about, including real-time data, registration, ballots, you know, if you want to look at where ballots are coming from in individual communities and what the party breakdown is, we provide all of that on our website at ocvote.com. Just scroll to the bottom and click Data Central, and you'll be presented with as much data as you could possibly consume. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, your work, it doesn't let up until the final certifying steps in January. Is that correct? Well, I have to have the election certified within 30 days after November 3rd. So but it's got to be yeah, early December. In early December. But there still are there not formalities that are essential to your responsibilities? No, and that's that. it. That's, that's a good it. question. That's it. And then it's the state then that takes over. That's it. Yeah, okay. correct. Well, Neil, here's the roll up here. Your involvement, setting the standard for other voters in the country. I've got to take stock with how the standard, in fact, it's a marvel to see a local official so capably carrying out your duties. I'm not sure that the public gets that the lack of drama is a gauge of how darn professional, how capable you are. So it's- I appreciate that. I, and I, I think some of us yearn to see leadership emulated in other arenas around. Well, Neil, thank you. It's always so good for you to offer your time, which is at such a premium in these electoral seasons. And thank you, Claudia. I, thank, and again, this is our ritual. I can't leave it alone. Again, a toast to reaching as close as we can to 100% turnout. Absolutely. My guest was Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. Everyone confirm your voter registration no matter where in the country you may be hearing this. We'll be right back with Greg Ratz, Republican candidate for the California 45th Congressional District, challenging incumbent Congresswoman Katie Porter. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Greg Ratz, Mission Viejo City Council member and Republican candidate running for the California 45th Congressional District, challenging incumbent Katie Porter. Greg Ratz is a combat decorated Marine Corps fighter pilot with combat missions in Iraq, Kuwait, and Somalia. He later served as chief of staff for the White House military office from 1996 to 1999 and as liaison between the Pentagon and the White House. After retiring from the Marine Corps in 2004, he was a pilot with JetBlue Airways, then went into business as a president of a company in Anaheim. He was elected to the Mission Viejo City Council in 2014, re-elected in 2018, and served as mayor in 2019. 
Greg Rass is, a, is vice chair of the Orange County Veterans Advisory Council and serves as board member of his homeowners association. He completed an associate's degree in political science from Saddleback College, a bachelor's of science in business at Arizona State University, a master's of science in military national resource strategy and policy at National Defense University, and a Bachelor's of Arts in History and Political Science at Cal State Fullerton University. Here today to talk about his candidacy, Greg Rath comes to us from his home in Mission Viejo. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Council Member Rath. Well, thank you very much. I always enjoy doing these, and uh, thanks for uh, scheduling this today. We're thanking you for your time, believe me. So you've witnessed pretty closely many of the federal national machinations in Washington, D.C. Could you, Greg Rass, first tell us a bit about what committees would you be most interested in serving on in U.S. Congress? Well, as a veteran, I'd like to be on Veterans Affairs to take care of our veterans here in the 45th Congressional District. There's about 80,000 military veterans, both retired and those that maybe served four to seven years that are here in the 45th district in Orange County. So I'd like to see what I can do to bring a veterans hospital to Orange County. Right now, us veterans have to go up to Long Beach to get medical care or down to San Diego. So I'd like to bring some type of a, a military a VA hospital to uh, uh, right here in Orange County. And also like to sit on arm, armed services. Obviously, I, I believe there's a in the Pentagon, and I believe that I can uh, point out where that waste is and try to trim our budget so we can start working on a balanced budget for the federal government. So a good deal. I can't put my finger on the, the amounts because I think that's probably not even easy to do, but the, there are funds, military funds, defense funds that have been routed around to non-military kinds of expenditures. I'm thinking of the the wall along the U.S.-Mexican border, is there an interest in uh, accounting for those funds uh, and re reorganizing the, where those funds are serving those purposes you're talking about in the hospitals and other Veterans Affairs benefits? Yeah, I'll tell you what, since this president's been in office, the veteran system has gotten better over almost 100% better. I, I use the VA system. I don't have to. I'm on Medicare, but I use the VA system just to see how they do because I'm a obviously a retired veteran, spent 30 years on active duty. And it's so good now. It's uh, the way Long Beach is. We actually have a clinic in Laguna Hills, which is really, really good. And it's just been wonderful. But I just uh, feel that there should be a hospital here in Orange County. I'd also like to bring a veteran cemetery, a national cemetery, to where the old El Toro Marine Corps Air Base was. So there's hundreds, thousands and thousands of acreage there. And all we're asking for is 100 acres uh, to lay us to rest. Right now, we have to go to Riverside. If you're a veteran, you want to be buried at a, a national cemetery, you have to go to Riverside or down to San Diego. So those are the two uh, issues I'd like to help with the veterans. Uh, that's obviously me being a veteran for so long. But uh, to answer your question, there's a lot of a waste in the Pentagon. I did work there for a while. I, I, I know where to find the waste. Uh, I'm not talking about building a wall or anything because that's productive, things are being done, but uh, there's just money that just gets lost. I mean, and I'm not talking a few hundred dollars, I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars and, with these contracts. So. 
I would want to do a, a bottom-up review uh, to see where the money is being spent, if it's being spent correctly according to the way Congress uh, uh, appropriates and authorizes money. And uh, I think there's a lot of waste in the Pentagon that can be cleaned up. I want to get one uh, briefly back to the, the hospital facility that you were talking about that could be a veterans affairs contribution here in Orange County. Is there a particular campus, a system that you're looking at that would be the most expeditious, the best to receive that kind of a program and build it up? Um, the VA hospital would have to be here at Orange County. Uh, Irvine has uh, some space available in uh, to develop uh, along with uh, at the Great Park area. Or of different yeah, facilities. the Great Park area. There's other areas that are able to be developed to put a, a, a hospital in. So I would uh, look in that area, but specific right now, I don't have a specific spot for it. But I would like to, you know invest, not investigate, but to look into where a good place would be for a VA hospital and see if the money's available. So that might be a long way out then if there's not now, really I, any kind of a, a rough now, draft. No, I won't say a long way out. I would just say uh, it could be a few years out, but uh, I, I don't consider that a long way. So at the time of this recording, it's September 18th, several COVID rescue packages and proposals are under consideration for unemployment, rental, homeowner relief, voter protections, postal service recovery, payment protections, so many things in that whole bundle. What, which of the proposals are you supporting? The only one I would support in my, uh, the, our current congresswoman just voted on a $3 trillion package. It's $3 trillion we don't have. Uh, she would have, we'd have to print the money, and I don't like that at all. It puts us deep, deeper and deeper in debt. The only issue I could see supporting would be to help small business. Uh, they're really struggling, and I don't like the way the governor of California is uh, shutting down small businesses, but he's keeping Walmarts open, he's keeping uh, Target, uh, Costco's open, but small businesses have been shut down and our churches are shut down, although they're starting to open up now finally at 25% capacity. So I would only appropriate and vote for appropriations authorizations for small businesses right now. Now, as far as unemployment, that's the state's responsibility. It's not the federal government's responsibility. When I was president of my business, we paid into the unemployment fund to the state of California, not to the federal government. I don't know why the federal government's sticking their nose into unemployment. That's the last thing they should be looking at. It's the state's responsibility to handle the unemployment program, period. So we heard from Jeremy Powell just within the last couple of days talk about the kind of levers within his grasp of creating the stimulus, the rescue package, so that there is money put back in the economy because we, we are seeing, seeing things slow down considerably. So and he was sort of indicating there's a congressional measure of, of getting money into the pockets of households to reinvigorate the economy for all the boats to be floating in. So you don't get that memo from Jeremy Powell that there are congressional responsibilities along with the Federal Reserve responsibilities in this COVID pandemic response? The Fed has done as much as they could possibly do. They've got interest rates almost at zero. I mean, 
and he can't go unless he goes negative. Um, he's ensuring that there's um, plenty of money, the Treasury's ensuring there's plenty of money available, but it's fake money. It's money uh, gets put in a computer and sent from one agency to another. It's not money coming from uh, taxpayers to Washington. It's, it's, you just can't use fake money to st keep stimulate the economy because sooner or later the dollar is going to be worthless when you sitting on a $26 trillion deficit uh, that the federal government currently has. And, and they're spending two to $3 uh, trillion extra a year that they bring in. You just can't sustain that. And uh, uh, what I think has to, with COVID is get people back to work. If you can open Walmart and you can open Target, why can't you open the, 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 uh, the, the shoe store, the little uh, shoe store down the street? I mean, get people working. We know how to live with COVID. We know where to, how to wear a mask. We know how to use uh, sanitizers on our hands. We know how to social distance. So let's get people back to work. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm with these people that said enough's enough. Why are you hurting and hurting our federal our, our our workers to the point where they can't go to work? It just doesn't make sense. You know why are liquor stores open but the churches are closed? You know, they they pick and choose winners and losers, and it's it's just wrong. It's just wrong for the small business owners in my community and of the Mission Viejo. I sit on the council as mayor last year. It's, these people are suffering uh, because of these these restrictions put on them by the, by the governor of California. What does he know that happens in Mission Viejo? Why don't he give that authority down to the, to the, um, to the counties and then the counties can give us authority on how we can run our own cities. The president does that. He's given all the governor's authority, but we, we live under a governor who just won't let us open up our state. I'm, I'm tired of it. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. My guest is Greg Rass, council member of the city of Mission Viejo and Republican candidate running for the California 45th Congressional District. So we're talking about the response to the pandemic. Um, I, I want to ask about, there's a portion on your website, and I'd like for you to ex sort of clarify what you meant. You said, and I quote you, Ted Cruz is right in spearheading the effort to increase our relationship with the state of Israel for our medical needs. What did you mean by this? Oh my God, I've been to Israel. In fact, when I worked at the White House, I, we, I did a presidential trip to Israel, then it was President Clinton. And uh, they are so advanced in uh, medical technology and medical uh, devices and pharmaceuticals. And they're such a strong ally of ours. I'm just saying we should work hand in hand with the Israelis, and, which we are. It's going on right now. So it's, it's not an issue. It, it, so they, they're just so far, not far ahead of us, but so far ahead in the world when it comes to uh, medical devices, medical technology, and pharmaceuticals. Okay. So then uh, another quote in that particular section of your website, it's, I'm quoting it directly. Lastly, President Trump was right in his efforts to curb the threat of transmission and his orders to the states to come up with state-specific plans to reopen their respective economies. And since you were working on the national level, you could see the kind 
of leverage that an, an entire nation can exert in negotiating contracting for in the supply chain in something like a pandemic. How did you think that the president's response was, as you said, was that was right in how he responded? To the pandemic? Yes. Well, it, obviously he saw the uh, origin of the uh, virus uh, coming from China, a town called Wuhan. And uh, I believe now that we have evidence that it came from a lab in Wuhan, and I believe the Chinese uh, kind of hid it from us. And uh, as soon as the president was aware that uh, they had this huge uh, New Year's, uh, Chinese New Year's, I believe, festival where uh, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world of China, Chinese ancestry came there, and then they all went home, and a lot of them carried the virus. And what he did was, as soon as he got wind of that, he shut down all travel to and from China, which was a smart move. And then when uh, they start seeing it expand the, the virus in, in Italy and Europe, he shut down travel from uh, from Europe. So I thought those, those were good moves. And then, you know, he worked hand in hand with Dr. Fauci and some of the uh, professionals in the medical field to kind of get a grip on what exactly this virus is. And at the beginning, we didn't know because there's just a few cases. And then the more we learned, we found out that it was pretty much if you're in good health and you're young, young meaning say 60 and younger, if you do contract the virus, you know, there's a 99.999% chance you're gonna recover through, uh, uh, through uh, it takes about a week or two to recover, but they did find those that are elderly with some other uh, conditions, say diabetes, or uh, some other underlying medical issues, and they picked up the virus, say they have emphysema or something, they, they, they had a lot higher death rate. So it took a few months to figure out just how bad this uh, virus is, how it, did, how it spread, and Dr. Fauci at the beginning thought it didn't spread through the air, so he kind of discouraged using uh, any type of uh, face masks or shields. The more we learned about it, the more we're able to say, well, maybe it does go through the air. So uh, they've now been uh, moved on to let's, you know, when you're in close, close proximity with people to have some type of face covering on. So if you do have the virus, you're not going to spread it to someone and someone who does have it can't spread it to you. So I believe we made a lot of headway here in Orange County. 3.3 uh, million people were down to, the last number I saw today was 62 people that are in intensive care, which is the lowest, lowest number I've ever seen here in Orange County. So Orange County should start opening up. The schools start open, they all open up next week. My, both my twin daughters, my twin daughters teach in Irvine Unified. They open up on, okay. I believe, Tuesday. So uh, I think the response, uh, although, you know, he didn't know, the president didn't know exactly just like the rest of us, but I think we've learned over the months on how to deal with it. So I'm, uh, the Bob Woodward book doesn't bring any new information to your thoughts about how the president responded to the threat of transmission. No, because when he, when, he, when he did that interview, there was no cases in the United States at the time. They're all over in uh, China or Europe. So he was getting uh, his information from Dr. Fauci. And Fauci even said, after the Woodward book came out, that you know President Trump, he, he responded appropriately. So uh, people who have animus for Donald Trump, uh, 
I, I, I think Dr. Fauci's respected and uh, he's the he's the professional. And I thought he's the medical professional. So uh, he basically said what uh, Bob Woodward's book said was uh, not inaccurate, but it was it wasn't the alarm that uh, the press is trying to make it out to be. I, I'll just bring up one other tack, though, before um, we conclude this particular line of questioning is, but what about the president's venturing with very, very unorthodox, untested, dangerous kinds of treatments that people did take up to the, in their fear of trying to, of, of contracting COVID-19? I disagree with the premise. I don't know what you're- With the, hydrox, the hydroxychloroquine, whether it was a counterindicated for some patients or what, uh, uh, one ingesting bleach, or there, there were a number of, of very oh, unorthodox. That's, that's not true. He didn't say that. He didn't, he never said that. He he said use. I, I saw the news conference. He he said you should use you know bleach to clear off you know your tables and things like that. But he never ever ever uh, said you should uh, ingest Clorox or bleach or anything like that. He's not that stupid. I'll set that one aside. And then I'd like to move on to the, we have a climate situation going on. If you were, probably, if you're still flying, you could probably see amazing smoke all over where you would fly your combat jet, right? Right. So um, let's have you talk about the environmental and the, the public vulnerabilities in climate that, um, what are your positions on the carbon tax, House Resolution 763, the Green New Deal, or the Green Real Deal? Well, let's let's look at these fires first. There's fires where? California, Oregon, Washington, correct? Correct. Among and Colorado as well. You hit the border of Canada, there's no fires. Why is there no fires? Because they know how to manage the forest up in Canada. They're very good at managing the forest. If, dead, if trees fall and die, they, they cut them up and uh, get them out of the forest and they clear the forest. Uh, unfortunately, in our Western states, uh, the environmentalists have made it so hard for uh, the Forest Service to go in and clean the forest because they're saying it's an environmental danger to clean out the forest. And I think the forest naturally has fires all throughout the history of the, of the world that cleans out the underbrush. And unfortunately, due to certain environmentalists, they're not there. They're not letting us go in, or not us, but letting the Forest Service go in and clean out the forest. So as soon as there's a spark, as soon as there's a lightning strike, boom, you, you got what we have here right now. We got 25 fires in California, 13 fires in Oregon, and a couple in, in the state of Washington. You don't have any, zero, up in Canada. So that's the issue. But if you want to talk about um, climate change and environment, I am an environmentalist. I have uh, solar panels on my roof. I have uh, artificial turf to save water here in California. I have double pane windows on my house. I have, uh, I, I belong, I'm a member of the uh, uh, Southern California Association of Governments uh, Environmental and Energy uh, Committee. And I believe there is a problem with uh, carbon into the atmosphere, but I'm not gonna get rid of carbon uh, fuel until we have a, uh, an alternative for gasoline and, 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 uh, and uh, natural gas. Because if, if we say, okay, no more fracking, no more drilling for oil, no more, all we're gonna do is 
end up buying it from Saudi Arabia or buying it from uh, the Middle East countries to supply our cars. So until we get a, a cost-effective alternative to the uh, combustible engine, uh, such as hydrogen, which is good, it, it has zero emissions. There's hydrogen cars right now, but they're very, very expensive. So until we can get the price down and come to an alternative, you know, we just can't throw away all the all the airplanes and jets and and, and cars uh, with in in the United States. So we need to come up with an alternative plan for a carbon uh, uh, type uh, cars or car carbon burning cars. And uh, once we have that, and then we can slowly uh, wean ourselves away from uh, these cars, like we did in the 70s when we got rid, rid of uh, unleaded gasoline. We used to have leaded gasoline, and it took about eight years, and they, they phased it out. Now we all have unleaded gasoline. So, But I would uh, continue to work. I believe there's a, there's a, a 764. You said 763. I think it's 764. There's a There's a a very uh, environmental friendly bill that I would probably uh, come to come to work with other Congress people about how we can uh, help those uh, of us that don't have the money to uh, basically reduce carbon ourselves, but these big companies and corporation, they would, they would pay the, uh, the tax and money to reduce carbon. Uh, I, I think it's 764. I'll have to check on it because I, I was briefed up on it. Uh, I believe it's 763, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Of yeah, that one. That's the one. Yeah, 763. Yeah, I, I would like to uh, look into that and see if I could sign up as a co-sponsor. I might want to make a few changes to it, but I, I like the way that's been put together. Okay. Okay. The Green New Deal? No, not the Green New Deal. Is it, Are you talking about the Green New Deal, 763? No, they're separate. They're very separate. No, no. Right. No, no. I, I'm not in favor of New Green Deal. I just think that's too radical. I mean, why... Uh, when, when the United States that is, has a very small segment of the world have to go through all this when the rest of the world, you know, continues to emit carbon such as India, China, and Russia, places like that. So it would have to come together and that whole Paris uh, climate issue was, was very bad for the United States. And I, I supported our president Hubbard sent to get out of that because it was just it was just going to cost American taxpayers trillions of dollars. And I think it re reduced the carbon footprint in the world by like one-tenth of one percent over the next 10 years. So the part of the climate crisis, I think, too, that not, the, not just the fire, but the extreme heat, and that is recognizing no borders. And I, I'm going to interview, after this whole election campaign, the season is over, I'm going to uh, interview... Uh, an author that is Mark Linus, our final warning. He's very, very alarmed with the heating up around the planet. And so I, I don't know if you feel like there is, uh, what, to what extent do you feel some urgency in bringing the, the carbon load in the atmosphere down? So are you talking about global warming or climate change? You said both. They're both. Both of them going on. That so There is a warming trend and the Arctic is uh, breaking up in greater and greater pieces. And so I, I wanted to know if looking globally at how the average temperatures are increasing with that, the increase of the carbon parts per million in the atmosphere, if you don't feel some urgency in the way we're urgently attending to a pandemic to deal with the climate crisis. 
Well, I believe the climate's been changing ever since the world um, began. I mean, we went through the ice age, we went through through everything. And I do believe that a lot of this is man-made that's currently going on. And there's ways we can work uh, with our own government and with governments of other countries to help reduce the carbon that I was just, we just talked about uh, throughout that goes up into the atmosphere. But uh, we have to work together and what good is it if we're gonna do it and, and then China or uh, India that are the worst polluters, they don't do it. So we'd have to work together uh, as a world to make this happen. So um, I don't like the Green New Deal. I think it's, uh, it's one-sided. The United States would really suffer. I would think our taxpayers would suffer. Taxes would go up uh, significantly and I don't think it would do enough to reduce the carbon that goes into the air that causes a global, uh, uh, global uh, weather change. So I would, uh, like I said, look at 763, work with those guys and see what we can do to uh, do our best to reduce the carbon. But also we gotta look for an alternative. Uh, I, like I said, I have solar panels. I do not use any power from any, any power plants around California because the solar provides plenty of power for my house. Uh, I have a car that the engine shuts off at lights. It's, it's not, not it, it's not electric, but it's it's uh, it shuts off at lights to save fuel and save emissions. So there's different ways of doing it. But I I, I I'm not 100% sold on electric cars because when you plug in your car at night, uh, there's got to be some power coming from somewhere, and they're coming from power plants, and those power plants are e emitting. Uh, uh, carbon into the air for your electric car. So I don't think that's the solution. I, I like hydrogen cars, but I think they're just way too expensive right now. Hydrogen. As you were saying, yes. So uh, as we draw down in our time together, where Greg Rath's are forms where our listeners can hear and can follow you? Um, you can go to my websites, gregrath.com, G-R-E-G-R-A-T-H-S.com. Why am I running? I served my country, uh, my, my community, my whole life, from Cub Scouts to Eagle Scout to government in high school to 30 years in the military to six years on city council, mayor of Mission Viejo. I, like you said, I serve on the Veterans Advisory Council for the Board of Supervisors for Orange County. I'm president of the Rotary Club last year for my Rotarium. I sit on my HOA. I, I sit on the Southern California Association of Governments Energy Committee. I'm a member of the Elks Club. I, I just love to serve and I wanna to continue to serve because I know how to help people. I know when they come for a problem, I know how to help solve their problems. And as a representative in the 45th district, I know this district, I've lived here for 42 years. I've been a homeowner for 42 years. I obviously through some military assignments, I had to leave and I had to rent my house. But I know the area, I know the district. I, all 10 cities are run by Republican mayors. They've also all, or nine out of 10 have endorsed me. Both supervisors are Republicans, both state senators are Republican, both state assembly people are Republican. So it's a very Republican district. The only Democrat is Katie Porter, who's, who's sitting, he came, she came here from Iowa uh, 11 years ago. I don't think she knows the district as well as I do. Uh, nothing against her personally. I know she's a single mom. She's got a lot on her plate and she's doing a great job, but I think I can do a better job. I think I'm more accessible. My kids are grown up. Uh, I just, it's my wife and I, so I'm retired from all my, from my, uh, from my occupations, so I can give 100% uh, 
to the, my constituents here in the 45th district and uh, Irvine being the largest city, Mission Viejo being the second largest city. I know the area. I, I, I was spent 20 years at Irvine at the Marine Corps Air Station El Toro and I feel I can serve serve the people and bring bring home what they need. And, and that's uh, some of the things I've already mentioned, a veterans uh, cemetery, a veterans uh, hospital. Uh, I like to take care of our elderly. We have Laguna Woods, ensure that Medicare is fully funded. I want to take care of uh, just as many people as I can and, and do a good job. And they say, well, how can you're just one out of 435? How, do you, how are you going to do that? Well, look at AOC. She's one. Look, look, look at what she's done. I mean, for a young lady, I think she's in her still in her twenties. She's about twenty-seven, I think. Yeah, although I don't agree. Or, no, maybe things. twenty-eight. Yeah. Yeah, although I don't agree with a lot of things she's doing, but look what she's done. She's done. She's done a really significant job, and I think I can do the same. I, I have sixty-seven years of life experience, uh, and I can use that experience where I can negotiate deals and work with uh, other Congress people. Um, on the Republican and Democrat side to get some good legislation and to get our budget under control. That's number one for me, get this budget under control. You just can't spend trillions and trillions of dollars every year and think more than you bring in and think our grandkids aren't. And I have six grandkids and they're, they're the ones going to pay the price. I, I, I may be around 20 more years, but they're going to be around for 80 years and they're going to pay the price. So well, I'm, I'm sorry we don't have more time together. There are there are other questions, but we that's all the time we have. Thank you, Greg Rath, for being on Ask a Leader today. Well, thanks for having me. And if you never need me again, you know how to get a hold of me. Okay, thank you. My guest was Greg Rath. He is serving on the city council for Mission Viejo, and he's Republican candidate running for the California 45th Congressional District. Thanks again. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we're hanging out down ballot again with Irvine City Council candidates. Farrah Khan running for mayor and Larry Agron, Lauren Johnson-Norris, and Tammy Kim running for city council. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Wear a mask, not just at your voting center, but everywhere. still exists. No one doubts that. Throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. <laughs>